Welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenefy, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Baselines podcast. I'm Ed Shanafee, your host, and with each episode of our podcast, it's an honor and pleasure to bring you the news and views from the private members club tennis and golf industries. Who could have guessed that a D1 player from University of Missouri would be the founder of one of the leading tennis and boutique magazines, Racket, based right there in New York City? But that's Caitlin Thompson's story, and she knows a great story when she sees one and writes even a better story when she gets her hands on one. Previously a writer for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, in 2016, Caitlin established Racket Magazine, which stands alone as one of the most creative publications not only in the tennis industry, but among all periodicals. She looks back whimsically at Tennis Magazine in the 80s and believes that Racket Magazine is a part of the culture of yesterday's tennis, but at the same time, with its content, looks forward to how tennis can move forward in this century. We discuss whether Twitter will become a relic, much like MySpace. Caitlin points out that Twitter is an outlet for journalists who look to Twitter as a way to communicate with their readers outside a typical editorial space. She says, in a world where we have to be thoughtful who owns the microphone and what it is that microphone is used for, she says. Well, I ask, is it possible to separate a commentator or writer from the tweeter? And speaking of commentators, Mary Carrillo is Caitlin's favorite. And we both discussed the reasons why Caitlin should take over Martina Navratilova's role in the commentary box and how I should be the replacement for Johnny Mack. But all joking aside, how politics has transcended tennis and sport in general is what is at the heart of what Thompson is doing with her projects, her magazine, her podcast, and her media group. Listen in to how she looks forward to working in our industry while expounding her goals and ideas right here on the Beyond the Baselines podcast. So... Without further ado, here's Caitlin. Hey folks, welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanfee, I'm your host. And this week we have a really special guest with us, Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine. She's the publisher of the magazine. Caitlin, thank you for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ed. Pleasure. So I've, I've caught you on the move. You're always on the move. You're down there in Manhattan. Uh, take us through a day of, of, of what is uh, a day in the life of Caitlin Thompson. What, what happens in your life every day? Well, if all goes right, I have at least some kind of hit on a tennis court. Sometimes it's a competitive hit. More than often than not, it's a meeting. Uh, Racket, as a media company, is fortunate enough to have a handful of very uh, dynamic, interesting investors, uh, in our small outfit as we grow. Uh, so a lot of times I'm having a meeting either with an advisor or an investor or doing some biz dev as the publisher. I, my job is really to bring in new business to work on our creative agency or event business, or, you know, to kind of make some bigger moves when it comes to exploiting our IP. So usually I have a slate of those kind of meetings, uh, each and every day. And my best days involve getting an hour on the tennis court and, to be honest, after being a competitive tennis player for a very long time, I don't care so much about the level or uh, the, the location of where I'm playing. Obviously, I have my favorites, but it's more about finding time to be outside and, you know, being around people I enjoy being around. You know, if you can't run your own company and make your own schedule and find time to do the things that 
make you feel alive, then, you know, what are you doing? So that's kind of how I think about putting my days together. Uh, and on a good day, it involves a lot of tennis. So how, you know, t- tell me, I mean, coming out of COVID, how hard is it to get on a court in, in Manhattan? I know you're in, in the city. So how hard is it there to get, get a court and get on, uh, get a game? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly very different than the suburbs. I uh, yeah. was lucky enough to, I grew up in Montreal originally and I played tennis out of the Southern section in the USTA. So the Atlanta suburbs where I was for a good chunk of time, tennis courts were, you know, a dime a dozen, practically free, tons of public courts, great teachers, great programs, great training. Um, you know, in Manhattan, obviously space is at a premium. The courts here run from free, which as you can imagine, are quite crowded to upwards of $200 an hour for your sort of most coveted spaces like Vanderbilt tennis center, which is in grand central station. So, you know, it's no, it's no small feat trying to figure out how to play, uh, and where to play and with whom to play. Uh, but there's a very, very interesting and committed tribe of tennis players here. And increasingly a lot of recreational tennis players pandemic created, I think, as it did in many places here in New York, a a very engaged tribe of people who are maybe coming back to the sport after a long time away, or people who are sort of inspired to try it for the first time, maybe because in small part of, of work that, you know, people like you and I are doing. So I think, you know, there's no shortage of people to play with, even though the spaces to play are are often in short shrift. So I work really hard to make sure I can find those courts uh, and, you know, find places and people to play with as often as possible. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast don't know that there is a tennis court up upstairs in, in Grand Central Station. You alluded to it and you have to go through this little hallway <laughs> back corner, you get in an elevator, you go up and there's this unbelievable tennis court that people don't know about. Yes. Uh, no, it, it's called the Vanderbilt Vanderbilt Club. What's it called? Again? Yeah, I think it's Vanderbilt Tennis Center. And you if you know where the Oyster Bar is or you can find the Oyster Bar. There's an elevator tucked in the hallway not right near the Oyster Bar, and that'll take you up to Vanderbilt. It's about 200 bucks an hour. And I'll be honest, the lighting in there is quite bad. It's also extremely <laughs> loud and sort of claustrophobic. That said, it's it's the sort of thing where if somebody else is paying, you know, you you, you a- deign to show up and hit with them. So so yeah. I don't make it a habit to play there, but uh, I'm not, I don't turn down an invitation as, assuming it's uh, at a time and and with a person that I can that I can work with. You know what I mean? I, I love, I, you know, the history of New York, you know, I, I know you're there and I grew up outside New York. Um, and there's, there's this other place, little place in Grand Central called the Campbell apartment. And yes. it's a, the history of that is amazing. And that's a tucked little doorway off the, the, the mezzanine level. You go in, you open this door and there's this amazing, you know, mahogany 1920s bar. It's just unbelievable. And it, it was there for like 60 years unused. And, and now like the tennis court is used. 100%. Yes. It's amazing. I think, you know, New Yorkers have a real appreciation for a narrative, for a story, for a scene. You know, yep. there are more glamorous places to eat oysters than in the basement of a train station. <laughs> but the idea that you're, you know, you're doing something that has been a tradition for a long stretch of time uh, is certainly part of the appeal. The Campbell apartment is amazing. It's, it's ideal if you're going to have a hit at Vanderbilt to head over there and have like a, a highball of some sort to, uh, to yeah. get the muscles loosened from your hit. So I think it's a, it, it's a definitely a, a step into New York city history that if you're a tennis fan, you can, you can get a little extra something out of uh, for anybody who's here, but yes, definitely prepare in both locations to shell out a good amount of money. <laughs> yes. Hey, you know, you bring me on to my next question, which is you said New Yorkers love a great story. And I think we all love a great story. Maybe New Yorkers love it even more than most of us, but at heart, you're a marketer and a publisher 
but I think you're a really good storyteller. And, and a friend of mine once said that both those jobs, marketing and publishing, require that person to be a phenomenal writer. How important is the written word, as you are a publisher now, in this day of Instagram? And how do you combine that with your art of writing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I appreciate you noticing that because I think for somebody like me, I went to journalism school as a magazine journalism editorial major on a tennis scholarship. So these worlds have been things that I've been sort of, you know, ruminating on and participating in and working on uh, my craft in for a very long time. You know, I think for me, despite the fact that I spent about 15 years outside of the tennis journalism world, I was at the Washington Post uh, and at Time magazine, as well as a couple of other places on the editorial side, on the storytelling side. Um, The written word was really rooted in what I did. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what is amazing about my partnership with David, who's my co-founder and the editor of the magazine, you know, I think for both of us writing, reading, and being sort of voracious in our uh, desire to, to find, consume, amplify, commission good stories is really at the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. You know, I think both of us really appreciate an incredible story. We, we are working on our first documentary film, uh, feature-length documentary film this year. And it strikes me that so much of what's going into it is just the written word. You know, obviously it's going to be filled out with interviews. In our case, some animation. It's going to be very visually compelling because we're working with partners and a director who's incredibly stunning at, at the way he approaches visuals. But at the end of the day, all of this is written out. And I think when you think about, yes, an age of Instagram, or, uh, you know, the amazing photography that David is able to include in the magazine or the original art that he commissions or highlights archived, uh, you know, in each issue, it's, it's certainly very, very much visual and it creates a real aspirational, um, I think, mood and, and uh, desirability among our audience. At the same time, I think the idea that the captions are just as important to, to root and to place some of the uh, imagery in, in context is really what is the key component to it. You know, we're not just trying to sell empty visuals. We're trying to create a story. And I think whether that is heavy on the visuals or devoid of visuals, the written word is really anchoring, is really what anchors uh, what we do. So I, I appreciate you noticing, because I think to me, it's still incredibly paramount to be able to write and, and you know, to be able to read and, and use it to, to further, you know, your, your goals uh, in, a, in a very concrete way. I think that's something we think a lot about. Beyond the Baselines is the leading executive search firm for private members clubs and boutique resorts. From the kitchens to the courts, the practice tees to the waterfront, Beyond the Baselines is your partner to find the best in-class employees for your club, facility, or resort. Whether you are a member-owned club or a corporate hotel entity, we are the specialists for you in elite hospitality. It's not just the members that should feel loyalty to their club. It's the sense of loyalty combined with the pride of offering superior service and hospitality in every worker that makes a good club that much better. So find that right candidate with us today. Call us today at 508-538-1288. That's 508-538-1288. Or visit us on the web at beyondthebaselines.com. So I ask all my, my guests on the podcast, you know, tennis and golf are two sports that take you to, to fantastic places. Where do you think tennis has taken you that you didn't expect to go? It's a great question. And I think at each stage of my life, it has taken me to places 
that I would never have anticipated in very different, um, in very different parts of the world. Obviously playing junior tennis out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, I played all over the South. So places like Savannah, places like Jackson, Mississippi, places like Little Rock, Arkansas, that I wouldn't have had another reason to visit, but tennis gave me a community and a context uh, was a really eye-opening experience because those are places I wouldn't have really sought out. In college, I played in the Big 12 Conference. Uh, I played at the University of Missouri in the, uh, you know, at the D1 level and going to Austin for the first time or Boulder or even places like Stillwater, Oklahoma. You know, like these are amazing sort of towns and places with stories and landscapes and images that I never would have encountered, I think, otherwise. And now as an adult, obviously, like going to India, going to Corsica or going to the slam countries, uh, you know, to see tournaments and to, to do business and do, to do events, uh, is something that I feel obviously tremendously, tremendously privileged to do. But, you know, I think back a lot about the ways that tennis has given me a world to step into and how we really wanted to continue that idea with racket, with the idea that not only is this something that has connected us as friends, David and I, and our small staff as we grow, but also with a community of people who want to find others to sort of have an adventure with. And I think for me, a lot of tennis, despite the fact that I played it pretty competitively um, at my highest levels, tennis to me is about creating connections. And I think the way that the world of tennis has sort of overemphasized excellence or dominance or professional as, a, at the, at opposed, as opposed to community or activity or uh, experience or, or adventure is something that we wanted to use racket really to address. And so I feel like there's no, there's no shortage of places that tennis can take us. I think now we have an event series called Racket House, which has had additions in Palm Springs and Miami, New York. It will have its first in London in a month's time. Uh, you know, I'd love to have one in Morocco, right? Like tennis is going to be able to bridge gaps and language and culture in a way that I think is really, really profound. And so my ambitions to, to do more in that regard are, are sort of endless, you know, because because of how much tennis has opened the world up for me and, and how much I want to have that be something profound for everybody else. That's great. I, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you in a way, what was the, at the root of you starting racket magazine? Was it, you know, the nostalgia of tennis? Was it the artistic side of tennis? I mean, watching the French open, the, the cameramen over there are just so artistic with their angles, their shots, the above, the below ground, the, you know, was it the root? What was the root cause for you starting the publication and the podcast? I, I think part of it was nostalgia, but it wasn't nostalgia for tennis's past. It was nostalgia for tennis culture's past, if that makes sense, right? Like mm -hmm. I think D David and I, in the 10 years of friendship that we used to create a vocabulary that became Racket, were really interested in this idea that tennis had been you know, very glamorous. It had been very worldly, but it had also been like way more public court centric and, you know, approachable than in the ways it kind of had been marketed in the past 30 years. You know, I think we look back at those 1970s photos of Bjorn Borg going to Studio 54 with Grace Jones in a fur coat as being like, oh, tennis was in the culture in a way that it hasn't been in a long time. And I think for me, that was more what we wanted to bring back. And we could do it, in a, I think, and have been doing it in a way that's very modern. It's not too, too sentimental, but the idea that using the right blend of nostalgia to sort of telegraph forward this idea that tennis has always been this very wild and exciting and eccentric place filled with a lot of really interesting characters, both on the professional, but also recreational and cultural levels. And 
it was more just the fact that nobody else was doing that, that we felt like it was our place to sort of insert ourselves. You know, I think had my tennis magazine subscription from the early nineties, when that was a really good <laughs> magazine. Yeah. Like it was a really good magazine. It was owned by the New York times. They had sketches about what Andre Agassi was going to wear to Wimbledon by like Donna Karen and, and right. You know, Isaac Mizrahi alongside long essays by, you know, real writers. It was a really good editorial publication. And I think it's sort of withered in the past 30 years to a degree that, you know, I, I, we'll pick it up to read about, you know, string patterns and, and shoes, but it's not really serving, I think, the, the place in the culture that it, it had. And so, again, we saw a big opening to sort of say, hey, you know, there's plenty of people who want to want to read about the gear, but we feel like we can do something a little bit more additive. And, and as, as a result, make sure tennis feels a little less uh, isolated, you know, and a little bit more filled with all sorts of the kinds of characters that we grew up being surrounded by, you know. So I think it was a sense of opportunity and a sense of, you know, there's a real, there's a real additive idea here that tennis has been kind of leaving on the shelf that we can, I think, bring a lot of new people into the sport. And I think honestly, that's what we've done. And it's what motivates us the very, very most. I think you make a great point there. It's not the nostalgia of tennis, but it's the nostalgia of the era or the culture at the time yeah. that tennis was popular. Like there's so many uh, iconic, um, like I think of the Connie Hotel in Palm Beach now. It's gone back to you know it's got a it's got this unbelievably 1920s 30s uh, you know feel to it. It's going back to the I don't know the halcyon days as you would call them of you know the, the 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 grand days of the 30s and 40s before the war. And I think you've hit that with with the magazine and other icons are doing it as well. You know uh, the Delano in, in Miami Beach is mm-hmm. you know does that kind of feel. So I think you've hit on something there. Um, and and it, it's interesting because you may, in a way, alienate some of the people that just look at the, you know, the new Nike fashion or, you know, look at the the reels that are of, of the kids, you know, throwing their rackets on the hard courts. But at the same time, you're going to appeal to a, a large group of people who who remember those days and not right. just through not just through tennis, but through their own lives. And. And I think what you say as a writer is is so great because you're trying to bring that whole ambiance to a publication, to a to a brand. Yeah, and I think what's interesting for me is like, yeah, we have a plenty of people who sort of remember those Halcyon days, but also I think what tennis, the missed opportunity that tennis um, has really, I think, tried to grapple with here in the past couple of years is just the fact that they haven't added younger fans. They haven't really worked out how to get mind share from other sports you know tennis used to be the third or second most popular sport in america and now it's somewhere close to the eighth or ninth right and i think Mm -hmm. part of that is the fact that tennis allowed itself to sort of be marginalized and defined by a few people a few brands and really made it um you know about a few kind of male-centric boring uh boring narratives that got really stale and i think for us like what other sports have done so well and where tennis really has a lot of room to improve is making their sport feel like the culture. Like in the NBA, for example, a game is incredibly compelling to go to. And I don't really even like basketball, but a game is compelling to go to because the music is interesting because you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, some, some zeitgeisty things happening. There's probably going to be some zeitgeisty people happening. There's going to be some interesting (laughs) political statements made by the players in a way that the, the press corps that covers the NBA is up for covering and parsing and it feels like there's a little bit more going on whereas tennis has really 
I think suffered under the idea that it's this like kind of corporate bland product that's meant to move Rolexes and Mercedes, right? Like those are boring brands and that's a boring narrative. And I think what is so encouraging to me is, yeah, sure. We get some nostalgia folks who are like, oh man, you know, I love that you guys talked about Andres Gomez beating Andre Agassi at the French Open and you know, whatever it was, but just as many or actually more are, ah, I didn't realize tennis was for me. And I'm a 25 to 35 year old creative director who didn't see myself in this sport until racket came along and showed me an access point and made me feel like I could be part of it. Right. And I think that to me is really where we want to be, right? Like the Delano isn't only opening their doors to boomers who maybe were, were at the pool bar 40 years ago, but rather they're Mm -hmm. creating an atmosphere that draws a cool young crowd because they feel like they can access something with history, but in a way that feels very fresh and modern. And I like to think that that's how our approach is borne out as well. It's not at all meant to, to laud the days of the past as much to say, hey, this sport has a lot of interesting history. It's been on the right side of history a lot more than it hasn't. And there's some fabulous characters that you're going to want to be reminded of. But because we know where we came from, we can, I think, be a little bit confident about where we're going. And I think where we're going is a lot more uh, sort of varied, interesting, narrative-driven, you know, sort of... Uh, players, brands, uh, events that feel a lot more like what other sports have already gotten really good at. And so to me, tennis is under-optimized from a very, very real perspective. And I think it's, it's playing catch up in a way that I'm, you know, I'm really proud that Racket has been a major, major part of, of creating. At Beyond the Baselines, we have over 25 years of experience with management of private members' clubs and boutique resorts. Whether it's finding the inefficiencies caused by the blurring of roles between management and board governance, managing a single department, or educating and mentoring a key employee, we have served the private members' club industry like no other consultancy since 2007. Partnering with club governing bodies and working alongside management, we bring a team of highly specialized and experienced experienced associates for that personal touch and hands-on management style to achieve long-term goals with short-term results. At Beyond the Baselines, we understand the traditions and importance of membership, but history and connections to a bygone era shouldn't inhibit growth. In fact, we believe they can be a catalyst for change. So please visit our website at beyondthebaselines.com or give us a call at 508-538-1288. That's 508-538-1288. Hey, as a publisher, you know, we're in this age of uh, social media um, and you use it very well. Um, but Twitter with with the purchase uh, by Elon Musk, one of the mainstays right now, maybe you could say that in the social media world. How do you see Twitter evolving if Elon does buy buy it if, if, he, if or if it, he doesn't? What do you think is going to happen? I, do you think Twitter is going to become like a relic like MySpace? What do you think? I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about Twitter is it really does provide an outsized platform for journalists. Like a lot, a lot of people, especially in New York who are in the publishing world, use it as a, a sort of internal message board. If anything, it's a good way to, to get a sense in a very quick way about what maybe uh, conversation is capturing the imagination of a lot of different types of people. You know, it can give you a sense. And the way I use it is a lot of times to, 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 get indications about which new writers and new voices we should be talking to um, mm-hmm. as opposed to Instagram, which is obviously way more of a visual media. So I think, you know, Elon Musk buying it. And I think one of the problems with, with Twitter, unfortunately, is the fact that 
And this is a problem with media in the US more broadly. And we can get into media theory a lot because I was a journalism major and I studied it. But you know, essentially since the time of the basically the deregulation on behalf of the um, the FCC by Michael Powell, Colin Powell's son in the early 90s, you know, our media has been skewed towards entertainment. And I think Elon Musk understands entertainment more than he understands free speech and its implications, hate speech and its implications. And frankly, a lot about uh, the way that, uh, you know, protected groups and, and human beings communicate, right? I don't think mm-hmm. he's really thought this through. And so for me, I, I, I worry that the ownership model where he's going to prioritize uh, engagement, which means people screaming at each other as opposed to regulating hate speech is, is probably going to shift in a way that makes it an unusable platform. And then it will very, very much become a relic like MySpace. You know, I think one of the things I think a lot about is, you know, when I was coming up in journalism school as a magazine journalism major, you had the power if you had a broadcast station and you were a radio broadcaster or a TV broadcaster or mm-hmm. the editor of a publication with access to a printer, right? Like that was right. the means of production. And so whoever had the power controlled the voices who got to have power in it. And unfortunately, those tended to look and sound a lot like the same types of folks, right? Mm-hmm. With social media, one of the things, Twitter especially, one of the things that changed is those means of production became approachable and all of a sudden you could disrupt uh, the traditional hierarchy and gatekeeping and give platforms to people who had you know different perspectives. As a queer woman, uh, I can tell you that newsrooms that I've worked in, and they've been some of the most storied newsrooms in America anyway, tend to be led by white dudes in their 60s who don't necessarily think what merits coverage is the same thing that a lot of people who aren't white men in their 60s look like. And so Twitter is a really good example of how creating a counter narrative to something that feels very real to a group of people that doesn't, you know, typically sit in positions of power uh, might think. That said, you know, with anybody being a publisher, which is what essentially social media promises, protected speech becomes a, you know, a, a giant question mark. And I think, you know, I'm answering your question in a very theoretical way, but That's okay. That's all I good. think about this a lot because, you know, to me, speech that harms has, you know, serious implications. And I'm not just talking about people being triggered. I'm talking about, you know, sicking, uh, you know, sicking the, the way that uh, athletes get uh, death threats when they lose a match because of gamblers. Uh, and right. these folks are, are sending messages that should would get them jailed in, in any other context or allowed to use platforms to attack and, you know, sort of terrorize athletes. That's a great tennis centric way of pointing out what I think Elon Musk is probably not going to be too concerned with. <laughs> Whereas if I ran Twitter, uh, you'd be bounced from the platform and, and never heard from again until it, it, it eventually stopped. Right. And so I think in a, in a world where we have to be thoughtful about who holds the microphone and, and what is that microphone used to do? These are the right kind of questions, and I'm glad you asked it, even if my answer is a little bit all over the place. No, it's theoretical. I, you know, I, I asked that with, of course, with an ulterior motive, which is I'm on Twitter and I follow like Brad Gilbert and I follow Chris Everett and I follow Martina Navratilova. And some of their tweets are obnoxiously aggressive. And, yeah, you know, I, 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 it's tough for me to 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 then see the Martina Navratilova um uh, you know, commentating on the French Open. And, and and she's a phenomenal commentator. You know, I rate her up there with, I mean, people disagree with me. I think John McEnroe is a great commentator. Um, I think Martina Navratilova is a great commentator. 
But it's tough for me to separate the commentator from the tweeter. And I think as we all grow older with social media, we're going to realize that. Someone said to me very wisely today, you know, we were so lucky in the 80s that nothing we did that was stupid was ever recorded. And it's true. You know, everything we do today, podcasts, social media, photos, Instagram, everything's recorded. And um, it's tough to separate a recording from the real person sometimes. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I also think like sports to me is always inherently political. And if you're not speaking about justice or making a better world, then Mm -hmm. you're siding with the powers that be. And I think even in tennis, those powers are not particularly interested in you know, uh, necessarily doing the right thing without being confronted, right? Like Venus Williams famously had to write a op-ed in the Times of London and appear before the all-white, all-male board of the All-England Club in 2000, I think, one, and ask for equal pay hours before going out and playing Lindsay Davenport in what was one of the greatest finals, male or female, in, in the tournament's history. You know, and I think the sport needs nudges. So I'm not saying I agree with all of Martina or Brad or Chris's dialectics on on social media i also appreciate the fact that human beings are uh, multifaceted and i frankly i wish their broadcasts were a little bit more dynamic in a way that made you know like you watch alex verov almost nobody has made mention of the fact that he's had uh very very credible accusations of domestic violence um made against him in a way that has you know resulted in an atp investigation um right. one that in any other sport would have him benched until the the investigation was concluded right if he were in the nba if he were in the nfl if he were in most soccer clubs he would not be playing right now you know i don't have anything negative to say about his tennis but the fact that commentators aren't contextualizing the fact that we're watching somebody who frankly shouldn't be playing at the moment you know is a little bit of a dereliction of duty in my in my opinion you know what i mean and so for me sports is political i don't mind that our voices get into it but i also think that means we have to challenge them and we can use it as part of our sort of dialogue with them. And, and frankly, it should inform who gets the microphone next, right? And frankly, in, in the case of all three of those, including John McEnroe, I think the time probably has come for them to pass the microphone on to someone else. Okay. Well, there you go. It's funny because in my in my world, um, and, and maybe I'm, you know, uh, brainwashed, is <laughs> as a director of tennis, or, no, not politically, but in a, as a director of tennis, golf, or any kind of department head of a club country club you cannot be drawn into a political conversation so if you say anything political you're you're basically toast your job's gone and so i i I probably react a bit more to my colleagues in the same kind of industry uh when they say something like that because i can't i can't say anything like that never can never will but um but <laughs> well, I, i'm glad so, you know so you know keep in mind that my <laughs> political context is that like you know we shouldn't have guns and everyone should have health care and free school so you know that's not here that's like i'm communist but in canada that's like table stakes it's also why well, you know nobody has student debt and you know we get hospital care and people don't get shot at schools so for me what is political is also sort of up for debate here those are all very controversial statements whereas where i'm from that's like table stakes you know what i'm saying but i totally understand like part of what we're all calculating all the time is where can we feel like we're expressing ourselves in a way that doesn't, you know, hurt or alienate Offend. other people, yeah. you know? Right. Right. But I'm happy to hear that you say, you know, I, I could have a possibility of filling John McEnroe's shoes if he moves on. I'd love that. I mean, listen, um, I think, yeah. you know, my, my requirement for people who are broadcasting tennis with the exception of Merrick Rilla, who's to me still the best to have ever done it, maybe up there with Bud Collins is uh, you have to have played 
in the, let's call it two decades uh, prior, you know, right, which means right. I think most of those folks are ready to move on. John, I like, but I just wish he would learn how to pronounce people's names. It just feels like, <laughs> he you doesn't know, take do, the time, do a little <laughs> bit of prep, man. You know, like act like you've seen these guys uh, before at least I, once. I'm an old fashioned guy. I, I, I do. I do like John. And, you know, I think Jim Carrey does a good job. I, I actually a- like Cliff Drysdale. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's the accent, but he's yeah. just so. I mean, he does have a very specific accent. To me, it's Mary Carrillo or nothing, you know, if nobody Mary else Carilla's did it, but Mary Carrillo. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Hey, last question for you. Where do you see yourself in in Racket Magazine in, in five years? I mean, are you going to be still doing what you're doing? What, 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 what do you think? What do you think is going to be, you know, Caitlin Thompson in 2020? seven i mean listen ed if you are going after john mcenroe's job i'm going after the commissioner tennis job so i think uh, i like i like the world with us running it right i think um you know nobody's uh you know if you can't vote for yourself what are you doing um That's right. no i think for rocket you know we're gonna have even more broadcast content tv shows travel shows documentary films uh my hope is we'll continue publishing books we had a very very exciting award-winning book come out last year we'll hope to do more of those um you know and i think probably realistically we will sell a majority share of the company to a larger media conglomerate that can help us reach the global audience that i think we can entice you know brackets not for everybody not everybody wants to spend you know ten thousand words reading about uh nabokov and his references to tennis so i'm aware that it's you know never going to be something that is is for all people. That said, I think there's a very, very exciting future for us being very influential in the tennis space and bringing back a lot of the style and culture. And my hope is, um, and if, if the present is any indication, we're, we're doing this well so far, is bringing this type of discerning, taste-making, but also very vibrant person into the world of tennis, whether that means as somebody who attends events or picks up a racket recreationally, or goes to a screening of a film, I don't really care. As long as they love this sport as much as I do, and I know, and I know you do, then that's a win to me. So I think that's what success looks like more than anything else. Perfectly said. I couldn't have said it any better. Great to, great to have you here, and uh, good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you, sir. It was a Thank real you. pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to beyondthebaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.beyondthebaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.